Well, it's good to see you all, church family. We are blessed to be able to meet on a Sunday morning like this. We are very grateful that the voice of the Good Shepherd has called us together and that we are here to put our eyes on the Scripture and to think about Him in deep ways, to pray to Him and to praise Him for what He's doing in our lives. And I know right now, if you've talked to many other Christians, that what we're doing this morning is no longer the norm. There are very few churches right now that are meeting in person, though though many are beginning to see the importance of it and that it's beginning to shift. Because we are in the minority, uh, you may very well, in your interactions with others, hear criticism about the decision that your church has made to keep meeting. And I want to encourage you to think very carefully about that. The majority opinion is not always the right opinion. We know that. In fact, we are warned by our Savior that as followers of Christ, we will almost always be in the minority, that we will often think radically differently than the way the rest of the world thinks. We are going to be at odds with the world because of what we stand for and because of who has saved us. If you're told that meeting together like this this morning is an unloving thing, that it is selfish, that it would be a very small thing to sacrifice our public worship time to increase the safety of our community, I want you to remember that worshiping the living God is the primary reason that we even exist, that we were created to glorify Him and to exalt His name. So for someone to think that it would be easy for us to just not do this for a time that's, that's to ignore the very purpose we have for drawing breath in the first place. It should never be a small thing for us to turn away from the gathering of the saints. And that's whether there's a pandemic in the world or not. We should have a great drive and desire to be near to the brothers and sisters that have been called by the mercy of God, who've been washed clean by the blood of the Savior. So I, I, I just want to remind you that that meeting together like this is not something that we do lightly, and it's not something that we do in complete negligence to your health. We desire for you to be healthy. We want for you to be safe. But at the same time, health is, is a broad term that encompasses a lot of different things. And I think we are healthier and better off for being involved with the worship of God by being near to Him and by hearing His Word clearly taught to us day in and day out. We are blessed by that. We need to keep perspective on this virus. We don't want to pretend like it is nothing, but we also want to remember that the reach and the impact of this virus is not as terrible as they thought it would be. The current stats as of yesterday were that 0.78% of the entire population of the United States has been tested positive for the coronavirus. 0.78%. That's not 78%. That's not even 1%. That's 0.78%. And of that 0.78% of the population, only 1.8% on average will experience death from this disease. So we're talking about a very, very small number. Now, any number is important because life is critical and vital. And we should, we should honor life in all of its forms. We should never take it lightly. No matter who we're talking about, life is precious. But we have to ask ourselves, are these the kind of numbers that should cause us to hunker down in fear and not come in to worship the Lord our God? We've got to be careful. We know some people are more vulnerable to this than others are, and we don't want to treat that lightly either. We want to respect that, and that's why we fully support our brothers and sisters who have prayed diligently about this and taken this seriously, and they are practicing uh, consistent social distancing so as to not get sick. We, We totally honor that, and we're praying for you. But we also want to assure you that being here today is not an unloving decision. In fact, it is a very loving decision to be here to love your God and to do what he has called you to do. And it is a brave decision. We're grateful that you are with us today. We are hopeful that the separation that has been pressed upon us in the name of love your neighbor, that it doesn't continue very much longer with other congregations, that people will begin to to boldly come forward and worship together. Because separation like that comes with its own failures. Sick people are left to sit alone in hospital rooms. We have somebody who's very dear to us right now, Joan, who's battling the the fight of her life. And she can't have a loved one near to her because of some of these social distancing things. These come with consequences and, and difficulties. Many are out of work 
who had worked just three months ago and were able to provide for their family and now are wondering where they're going to put, how they're going to put table, uh, food on the table for their family and their loved ones. Um, so there are, there are repercussions to staying apart from one another. This is a complex dilemma that has many facets. May we think carefully and clearly about it and refuse to take the easy route of painting people and sweeping generalities. Even if somebody disagrees with what we're doing right now, that doesn't mean we are to be bitter towards them or to judge them. We are to lovingly and gracefully accept that not everyone sees things as clearly as we do or in the same perspective as we do. So please continue to give grace to one another. Please continue to pray for God's church to be wise and discerning in this very difficult age. But we are here this morning, aren't we? So let us open up our Bibles to the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, this wonderful letter that Paul has written for the edification of the people in Corinth and by extension, all the people of God's church. The Apostle Paul has finished the introductory greeting and has begun to share the primary content of his letter. And so far, the key theme that we are focused in on, that we are spending our time really concentrating upon, is this idea of unity in the body of Christ. The church at Corinth was struggling with division. They were not a church that was all on the same page. Rather than divide one from another, Paul urges the church to unite under the gospel and to realize that their new identity in Christ divides them from the world that these Corinthians, many of whom were Gentile converts, grew up in and were so familiar with. That world that they used to know is no longer their true home. And so this week we will see how Paul progresses his plea to the brothers at the Corinthian church. And he does so in three different ways this morning. First, Paul is going to clarify the purpose of his own calling. He's going to declare that the subject of his preaching must always be the gospel. And that is the thing that he was called to do, to preach this mighty word. The same gospel that is foundational to the unity that the Corinthians should be experiencing and need so badly right now. Secondly, Paul is going to point out to us that the message he's preaching is a divisive message by its very nature. That not everyone will receive or accept this message. To all who hear it, the message will be one of two things. It will be foolishness or it will be power. We will discuss the one key factor that determines which way people will see and receive this gospel. And then thirdly, Paul's going to remind his readers of the way that God has displayed his wisdom to be greater than the worldly wisdom around them at such a critical point in the time of Israel's history. He's going to talk about King Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and where God not only declared that he would destroy worldly wisdom, but gave a shadow of that final judgment by sending his angel against the nations of Assyria. So those are the three things we're going to be looking at today. Let's look in our scriptures together. At 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we are going to be reading verses 17 through 20 as we prepare for what God has to share with us tonight, or this morning. Starting in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Let's bow our heads and ask that God would come and be with us, that he would show us what we need to see, that he would open our hearts to these truths, and that he would help us to live them out courageously. Let's bow our heads together. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for your righteousness, Lord Jesus. And so we pray that you would put a hunger in us, a yearning for more understanding, a, a desire to be nearer to you through, through comprehension, God. We want to understand you. We want to know you in a familial way. We want to draw near in fellowship with you right now, God. Stoke that hunger in us. Make us thirst and long for your righteousness, a righteousness that we cannot get by any effort of our own. My Father, I pray that you would, you would give us that thirst and that hunger. And we trust this morning that you will not send us out of here unsatisfied, 
May your word give us exactly what we need, Lord God. May we grow by it. May we be strengthened to stand for you in this world according to the word that directs us and guides us. We love you and we glorify you this morning and we trust that you will do your work through these these words in Jesus' name. Amen. At the very end of last week's passage, uh, the Apostle Paul makes a clarifying statement about the exact nature of his calling to ministry. And that verse so ties with the two verses I wanted to tackle today that we're going to look at that first. It's 1 Corinthians 1.17. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The division at Corinth had much to do with the people there trying to align themselves under certain teachers, certain leaders of the church. So Paul begins in verse 17 by making it clear whether Paul baptized people at Corinth or not, it didn't make those particular people his people. He wasn't baptizing people into the tribe of Paul. And I'm sure if Apollos were to have baptized there, he wasn't intending to do that either. If Peter baptized there, we don't know if Peter ever went to Corinth or not. If he baptized there, he wasn't baptizing converts to Peter. Paul's baptism was not to try to win people to himself. He wanted to win people to Christ. This matters because their partiality towards certain leaders in the church was making them behave like the secular world that God had saved them out of. Their philosophies and ideologies were keeping them from agreement. Their childish tribalism was causing them to be less loving and accepting to one another and was giving a poor witness to the nature of Christ Jesus himself. Paul's specific focus is not baptizing. It is preaching the gospel. That is the thing to which he was called. Now, he doesn't say this in any way to diminish baptism. Baptism is such an important and beautiful sacrament that God has given to his people. We need it. Baptism is something we should not take lightly. Ephesians 4, one of the passages that was read last week in support of this unity that the Corinthians should be striving for, says, You were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all. So baptism itself is not the problem here. The problem is that certain people felt a special allegiance or bond with the leaders who performed their baptism. And while that sacrament should have been a picture of new birth to them, that we are now alive in Christ, we who were dead in our sins before, it was being misused as an excuse to identify with some of the brothers who happen to be leaders and those who follow that particular leader and not other leaders. Paul wants to squash that attitude right here. To further cancel out any claim that some Christians might be making to himself, Paul had determined to preach the gospel in a very specific way. Paul was not commissioned to preach the gospel with the kind of eloquent wisdom that impressed so many in that day. Here, as in other places, Paul is careful that his audience understands how and why the gospel was presented to them. The letters to the Thessalonian church probably were written before the letter to to the Corinthians. So I'm going to read a couple of passages to show that this is not the only place that Paul was careful to make this clear. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, he says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So powerful preaching, useful and eloquent speech was not enough to win the Thessalonians to Jesus. He knew that it was only going to save people if it was accompanied by the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. He clarifies even further in the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians. He says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impunity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God, who tests our hearts. Paul and the other apostles, how were they preaching? They were preaching to the glory of God, to the satisfaction of God. 
and not to please men. He goes on to say, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So Paul makes it clear in several areas of Scripture that he's not trying to draw people to himself with some sort of eloquent and beautifully polished preaching. He's not there to impress people with his speech. He wants the power of God to work through him and through the gospel message to draw people to Christ. Now the church at Corinth was filled with many Gentile believers. There were some Jewish believers there too, but we know that many of the believers in Corinth came from a secular culture. These Gentile Christians, most of them from Roman heritage, owed much of their culture and influence to that of the Greek empire that held power before Rome. One aspect that had particularly carried over into the Roman Empire was a fascination with philosophy, with speculative thinking, and with it, a fascination with rhetoric. Now, I hope that you are somewhat familiar with that term, rhetoric. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. Rhetoric is the art of communication through both the spoken word and the written word, often with the intent to persuade someone to your opinion or to convince them of your argument. That is what rhetoric is. It is, it is the art of communication. Now, originally developed as a way to help citizens plead their case in the court of law, because Greek had a very advanced law system. Citizens had rights, and so they began to develop a way for them to, to speak their mind and to show how they were either innocent or, or deserving of, of retribution if somebody else was guilty against them. Rhetoric began to really flourish as the Greek and then the Roman empires embraced philosophy and became enamored with new ideas and theories about life. So it started as legal defense and it began to become a way of speaking to convince people of your spiritual ideas, of your philosophical ideas. So rhetoric takes communication and it refines communication so that the person speaking or the person writing will come across as believable, as winsome, and as convincing. Some who studied rhetoric would be very careful and very capable of understanding their audience and adjusting their presentation and their argument in such a way that it would be easily received by those who were being addressed. Let me outline some of the ways that rhetoric tries to sway and persuade, and I'm sure you'll be familiar with some of these. Those who care about rhetoric want to be masters of the language. They care about wordplay. They want to have a strong handle on how their language is used, a broad grip of vocabulary and syntax, because when they are confident with the way the language is used, that makes the presenter not only easier to listen to, but it motivates the audience to want to hear more from them. Things such as alliteration, metaphor, captivating illustrations, rhythm and cadence of speech. These are all techniques that one shows that they have a good handle on the language that they are using. They will also employ the tactic of tugging at the heart of the listener. They understand that empathy and sympathy ignite an emotion in the listener which can sway them to their side. People pay attention to something that they care about. Have you ever read a book or watched a movie where whoever was creating the story failed to make you really care about the characters? And halfway through, you're just looking at your watch, you want the movie to be over because you're not really invested. You don't really care one way or the other whether they succeed or fail. Somebody who's good at rhetoric knows how to make you invested in what they have to say. They want to tug at your heart. They want your empathy. There's also often a heavy association with the listener. The one who is speaking is trying to connect to the person that they're talking to in some sort of way. Rhetoric trains a speaker to be keenly aware of how selfish human beings are. Now think about this. When, when somebody shows you a group picture, maybe you were at an event, you remember those things where people gathered together and we would take pictures together? And if somebody shows you a picture they took at that event, what is the first thing that your eye naturally goes to? You probably are looking at yourself first. That is... That is a evidence of the selfish nature of human beings, that we tend to look 
first at ourselves. We want to see how we were presented in, in the picture. We want to make sure our hair, if we have it, was not out of place. And that, and that we, were, we were not making a goofy face or our eyes were not closed. And it's the same with, with rhetoric. They understand that those who are listening want some sort of meaningful connection to themselves. And it is to the advantage and the benefit of the speaker to try to connect with them in some sort of familiar way so that they will listen more closely to what the speaker is saying. Rhetoric means that you've got to be innovative, that there must be novelty in the way that you express the ideas you're trying to communicate. People love to hear something new. We tend to tune out what we think we've already heard and learned. Oh, I already know about this. That's done. I don't really need to pay too close of attention, right? But if the person who is talking to us or writing to us can convince us that they know something that we don't know yet, then we're more likely to tune in because we don't want to be left in the dark. And this is something that is just natural to man. We don't want to be without knowledge. And I I bet there are often times when you walk away from a sermon on Sunday morning and the one thing you remember is the thing you didn't know quite yet. But other than that, you, you, you don't really remember a lot of things that you already knew that the preacher said. And finally, there's dynamics. Someone who is skilled in rhetoric is careful about the way that they speak or they write, the volume and the pitch of the speaker's voice, the pace at which they write or speak, the way their message is organized to create a dramatic build and to help the listener or the reader follow along with concepts. And that dramatic build reaches a crescendo and an easy-to-remember resolution and a moral to tie it all together, then it is more memorable and convincing. And so dynamics are an important part of rhetoric. These are just a few examples, but I'm sure you can identify with many of these rhetorical strategies and see that they are being used around you all the time to grab your attention and to get you to agree with people who are trying to be influenced, or that you are trying to influence, rather, with the way that you think. Why is rhetoric an effective area of study? Because rhetoric sells. Rhetoric draws people in. And since it keeps people's attention and has the power to connect to their desires, rhetoric has the power to be influential. It has the power to lead others. Now here comes the danger, church. Someone who is good at rhetoric has the power to make the discussion less about the actual content being communicated and more about the way that it is communicated and the likable persona of who is doing the communication. The sophists, the philosophers, the communicators of Paul's day actually often cared little about truth. They saw the packaging and the presentation as much more important than the content. In some ways, this is evident in marketing today. What matters is not the product and what it actually does, but what matters is what the consumer perceives it to be. That is what sells. Empty hope more so than reality. Let me give you an example of this. Folgers coffee. Now, I want to preclude this by saying that if you drink Folgers coffee, you are not a sinner. I will still pray for you because there is a more excellent way, but you are not a sinner for drinking Folgers coffee, right? But think about the Folgers Coffee commercials that you have seen over time. You see the heartwarming story unfold of that son or daughter who has been serving in the military and they sneak home to surprise mom and dad with a visit and they get there before everybody wakes up and they've already got the coffee going. And so people come down and they say, oh, I've missed you, you're safe, I love you and let's have some coffee together. And so you get this association of family love, familiarity, and this coffee that you're drinking together. You're not really selling the coffee, because to be honest, folks, in my opinion, there's not a lot to sell there when you're selling Folgers, but you're selling familiarity and warm feelings and fuzziness in the heart. They, it, they also have commercials about Christmas time, right? People coming home for Christmas and enjoying a nice warm cup of coffee when it's cold outside. Think about the jingle. The best part of waking up is... Think about what you just said. Is the best part of waking up drinking cheap coffee in the morning? (laughs) Is it? It is not. This coffee company has got it stuck in your head that the best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup and not praying to the Lord God who has given you another day 
and not, not waking up to see your family, but getting that coffee that you're shaking for, right? That is good rhetoric. You have been influenced by rhetoric. If you've heard those things and you can remember those things. And that might be a good way to sell cheap coffee. But it is an unacceptable approach to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the message preached in pulpits is anything less than the gospel and the truth that it stands for, if that gospel is not communicated honestly and clearly and according to the scriptures, then no matter how much it appeals to the audience, it has no power to save. It must be the honest gospel. The eloquent, those who are skilled in rhetoric, can draw people to themselves, but that doesn't mean that they can draw people to Jesus. In fact, overly beautiful speech can act as a kind of distraction from the message of the gospel. This morning, tens of thousands of people will turn up on their computer screens and they will launch their browser and they will log in to watch a service being streamed from Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. And the man that they will see on the screen is winsome. He's incredibly friendly. He's very positive and encouraging. And he'll spend about 25 minutes helping them feel better about their lives. But while Joel Olstein is undeniably an influential speaker who's a master of rhetoric, the message that he shares will in all likelihood be void of the gospel itself. It will not speak of the sin of those who are watching the sermon. It will not point to man's inability to redeem himself and bring himself near to the Lord God. It will not showcase the person and work of God's Son who came to suffer in our place so that we might be redeemed and know God. People will turn off their browsers and when it's done and they'll feel happy, they'll feel better, they'll likely come back next week, but they will not have gotten what they desperately need. Jesus, Him crucified, and risen again as the victor over sin and death. Paul determines not to take the eloquent wisdom approach to preaching. He does that because of what's at stake. Verse 17, Let the, Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That phrase should grab your attention, church. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. If you trust Jesus Christ, you need to linger on that phrase for a moment. On the surface, it seems impossible, doesn't it? How can the cross of Christ be emptied of its power? The cross of Christ has the power to wash away my sin. No matter how heinous and vile, the darkest things, I don't want any of you to know, the cross of Christ can wash that away. It can make those who are far away from God and enemies to His kingdom, it can break down their hearts and change their minds and draw them into the kingdom of God so that they belong to Him, so that they are now children of God. The cross of Christ has the power to change a life completely, to separate somebody from the addictions that used to hold on to them, to give them joy where depression and sadness and lostness used to dominate. We sang earlier that sin and death has been destroyed by the work done on the cross of Jesus Christ. History has been split in two by what Jesus did. How can this cross be stripped of its power? When Paul refers to the cross of Christ being emptied of its power, he's showing how the cross is being used inappropriately as a prop. To those who are more concerned about being eloquent and demonstrating the kind of earthly wisdom that is attractive to the worldly wise heart, the real message is not Jesus' perfect life, his brutal death, his burial prophesied, his miraculous resurrection, or our need to respond to him. The cross may be referred to in those sermons, but the actual message ends up being something far more appealing to the fallen heart of man. So there is a cross in that sermon, but it is an empty cross. It is not the true cross of Christ. Have you heard gospels like that? Jesus wants you to be rich and healthy and carefree. Does that appeal to you? Does that message sell? 
Jesus will give you the playbook to being who you want to be. He will help you live your best life now, and He'll make people like you. Does that message sell? Jesus has hidden secret knowledge. And if you know more than the next guy, God will love you more. You'll be saved. Come here, and I'll share that knowledge with you. Does that message sell? Each of those messages is marketable. Each is a message that is empty of the gospel. The power of the gospel, the person and work of Jesus, takes a backseat role in each of these watered-down, counterfeit gospels that I just mentioned, and there are dozens of others. So the cross is not rendered literally powerless, rather a powerless shell of the cross, one that does not put the focus on Christ, but instead boomerangs the focus back on man. That is an empty prop used in that kind of pointless preaching. The power of the cross is forfeit if the message focuses more on the sinner instead of the Savior. Rhetoric appeals to the self. Now, Paul cannot stomach the thought of drawing a huge crowd, of gaining their applause and respect if the price of that kind of success is that they will walk away impressed with Paul and not with Jesus Christ. So he refuses to let rhetoric form and style literary devices become the emphasis of his preaching. Paul's ministry will live or die by the truth of the gospel. If the true gospel displays the mighty power of God, why are so many preachers convinced that it's not enough? That it's not enough to say that they have to pretty up the gospel, that they have to make it more appealing to the masses. Why are so many preachers minoring on the sacrifice that Jesus made and majoring on impressive speaking techniques that draw more from the wisdom of man than they ever do from God's superior wisdom? Paul's clear on the answer. He says this in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To those who are perishing, the word is folly. It is foolishness. The word of the cross is not just the crucifixion, but all that Christ's sacrifice entails and accomplishes. It is a disruptive truth that jars us awake from the dull existence of rebellion. The wages of sin is death. There is nothing I can do to atone for my own sins. On the blood of a perfect sacrifice, only the blood of a perfect sacrifice shed for me can wash me clean of my sins. And since literally no one can offer that perfect blood, God had to send His own Son to accomplish it. Still, that jarring message which opens our eyes and shakes us up, that message which is so controversial, does nothing to shake the soul who is not quickened by the Holy Spirit. The word of the cross is certainly the contrast to the Sophia Logo, which is the Greek terms used to represent this human, beautiful wisdom, this rhetorical way of speaking. The content and the form of that human wisdom is perishing. The wisdom of the cross shines brighter in contrast to it. And we learn in verse 18 that this word is viewed in one of two contrasting ways. And this shows us again, friends, that, that while God is calling His church to unity, we cannot be expecting to be unified with the whole world. There is a dividing line here. Those who are in Christ will think very differently about the things of the cross than those who are not in Christ. Those who were formerly defined by their identity as a Greek or a Jew or as a man or a woman or a slave or free. When you are a believer, what matters is singularly if you are in Christ or not in Christ. And so the first response you can possibly have is that the word of cross can be folly to you. The word of the cross is folly to the world. It is foolishness to those who are perishing, meaning those who are headed towards destruction who are not alive in spirit, but are completely broken off from God. What is foolish about this gospel? There are so many things. To the worldly mind, this gospel seems so foolish because it is not something you can earn. Everything else in the world, how do you get it? You work for it. 
You apply yourself to it. You get up earlier than the other guy. You study harder. You focus more acutely. You earn it. And yet this gospel that is preached, this gospel of Jesus Christ says, you can't do it. You can't. You will never accomplish it. But somebody greater than you came and did it in your place. And you just trust him. You just put your faith and hope in him. That seems so illogical to the heart of man which wants to prove its worth, that wants to be praised and hailed by all those around it as wise and good and pure and holy. To know that we are none of those things apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ is so humbling that the world sees it as foolishness. This gospel rewards the undeserving. How can people go to hell who have done such terrible things? Shouldn't they be given justice in hell? Shouldn't this person who is worse than me, how can they be a Christian? I know they're not worthy of the gospel. And yet the gospel says this is a free gift. This is not something that God is handing out to those who keep the most amount of rules. By his discretion and his pleasure, he saves whom he desires to save. Foolishness to the world. Foolishness to the world. And this gospel is free. How can it be valuable if I didn't have to pay anything for it? This gospel doesn't discriminate. How can people who are so different than me be, have access to this gospel of salvation? I'm so much more advanced or refined or, or educated or successful. How can that person have the gospel that really should be mine? The gospel says, I don't, it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what kind of intellectual prowess you have. And if your faith and hope is resting on Jesus Christ, you can be saved. It doesn't make sense to the world. It makes sense to those of us who were foolish before and didn't understand this either until God changed our mind. It goes beyond our human models for wisdom. Je what was that? Jesus rose from the dead? That doesn't happen. People don't just die and then three days later rise from the dead. That is offensive to the intellectual mind of humanity. The wisdom of the world says that's foolishness. That could not be true. How could this man walk upon water? How could he feed thousands with a few loaves and a couple of fish? How can this God in flesh do things that we don't understand and don't have intellectual models built to explain? The gospel redefines the fundamental way that we look at life and death. It says we now give up our lives in order to gain them. Rather than doing all in our power to preserve and improve our time here on earth and to keep it as long as possible, we pour our lives out in worship to God. We hand it over to the Lord to be used as he sees fit. That is greater than the freedom of the world. Intellectual Worldly wisdom says that your freedom is your ability to get out from underneath any authority that keeps you from doing what you want. And the gospel says, no, child, true freedom is being under a righteous and holy king who knows what is good. You are freest when you are governed by him. Are you saved, brother or sister? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you are, praise God but realize that you're still a human being. And you're still prone to think of heavenly things as foolishness unless your focus is squarely on Christ and your hope is resting in Him. I'm going to give you an example of this. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 22. Jesus is speaking with His disciples. It says in verse 21, From that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus, being rebuked, by Peter. Why? Because it was foolish to him. He could not see how the Messiah that he expected to come and fulfill promise to establish kingdom and to thwart the enemies of God's people could accomplish salvation and redemption by being shamed, 
by becoming a curse and hanging on a cross. That seemed the exact opposite of what Peter expected to happen. He couldn't believe it. It was foolishness to him. How does Peter make such a satanic declaration? Because it seemed like idiocy in his mind. So it even took the disciples themselves a while before they could really wrap their brains around how other the word of the cross really is. So don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, if there are times when you're caught up in the wisdom of the world and it makes you wonder, and you read a passage like Genesis where it's talking about the flooding of the world and the, and the ark, and you think to yourself, how's that possible? I just, maybe this isn't real. Maybe this isn't true. Maybe it's just a myth or a story. And you've got to remember that the Lord God that you worship doesn't fit within the borders of space and time. That he's supralogical. Not that he is ridiculous, but that his truth goes beyond what human minds can comprehend. So we don't have a framework to understand all of what he can do. Humble yourself before the Lord and realize that this God you have come to worship is greater than anything being cooked up in the universities in our nation today. If you embrace the gospel, be prepared to be thought of a fool. Have people look down on you because you've come to church, because you've placed such a high priority in your life on worshiping the risen king. Don't be surprised by that, friends. Don't be offended by it. Don't react defensively. Don't be bitter towards those people, but realize that this thing that God has opened your eyes to can't be seen by every eye. And even those whose eyes have been opened don't always see it clearly. The world will think of us as foolish, but do not be ashamed or dissuaded. As Paul told his dear friend Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, said, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for, this, for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. The word of the cross is folly to the world, but not everybody thinks about it like that. The word of the cross is power. It is the power of God to those who are being saved. It is the power over sin. And if you've tried to battle sin in your flesh, you know how futile that is. You know how failure prone we are. When we try to say, I need to do something better than the way I've been doing it before, how easy it is to fall back into patterns, how easy it is to desire that thing that you're letting go of. When you try to battle sin in your flesh, you can see how little power you have over it. But in the cross of Jesus Christ is victory over sin. We don't have to love it anymore. We don't have to desire it anymore. It doesn't have to be our master like it used to be. In the cross of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, there is power over death. We have been promised that we too will probably see the grave one day unless Jesus returns before then. And our bodies will rot in the dirt. Yet like Christ, our Savior, rose on the third day, so too is there a resurrection waiting for those who are in Christ. The cross of Jesus is the power of God to those who believe. It is power over the law. You are no longer bound by the law. It no longer shames you. Now it is a beautiful tool that God uses to refine you and to show you who he is and to protect you and to give you um, great blessings. God has given us so much power through the cross. Not just generic indiscriminate power. What kind of power? The power of God. Are we just interested in generic power? Do we just want to tap into somebody else's power to use for our own means? Is our life going to go to the highest bidder who can give us more power? Or are we truly blown away by the power that God has and God alone? Do we know that it can only be his power? And then if we were to try to take that power for ourselves, we would fail with it. God's power belongs to God alone. 
And it is the true gospel of Jesus Christ in light of that, that everything else passes away in light of its power. It renders every other little g God obsolete. So what determines the way a person comes to see this word of the cross? What determines whether somebody says, oh, that is foolishness? Or would they say, wow, that is the power of God? Let me start by telling you what doesn't determine it. It's not clever arguments. It's not polished communication. It's not the terror of hell that turns people to the Lord Jesus Christ in reality. Paul knows that the salvation of people does not hinge on his rhetorical powers. It hinges on something much more powerful than that could ever be. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Who causes someone to be able to grow in this truth rather than being repulsed by its foolishness? The Lord God does that. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So no one can naturally see this. No matter how good a speaker you are, no matter how well you write, you can't turn a heart towards Christ. Preach that gospel. Continue to communicate it. Do it as faithfully as you possibly can. But when you see somebody's eyes open and you see them start to realize, I'm a sinner too. And I'm I'm in danger because God is angry at my sin. And he's going to punish it because he's a just God. I need salvation. When you see that light bulb come on, you know it was not you who did it. You know it was the power of God at work in you and through you. But God is the one who changes a person. John 3, 3. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Strong voice display of passion, a masterful grip on the language. These things may all have an external impact on the hearer, but the testimony of Scripture declares the mystery that apart from God's spiritual life-giving work, without the Holy Spirit quickening the heart of the one who was up to that point spiritually dead, then no amount of persuasion will be enough. What determines the way a person comes to see the word of the cross? Simply regeneration. The will of God enacting upon a wicked person to make them a believer. Why does this dichotomy of folly and power, why does it motivate Paul to preach without eloquent words? It motivates him so that the cross would not be emptied or robbed of its power. And we can see clearly there's a lot of power robbing going on today in the way that people are preaching. There's a lot of preaching that caters to the desires of man, that tickles ears, Paul says, and warns Timothy of in his letters to him, that makes people think that everything good they want to have happen is what God wants too, when in reality, true preaching conforms our heart and will to what God wants, not the other way around. Does this mean we should delete all the preachers from our podcasts and from our radar that are really good communicators? Not at all. Not at all. 1 Corinthians 10.31. We're not there quite yet. It says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do I want to be a good preacher? Do I want to be able to grab the attention of people so that they will see the power of Jesus Christ? I want to do the best that I possibly can at this craft. Nothing is wrong with polished preaching so long as its power is the cross. And we're going to talk more about this as this argument unfolds in the next few verses. But it is not wrong to be a good preacher. It is wrong to be a good speaker who speaks without the power of the cross. This should make us consider how we think about preaching, shouldn't it? We naturally like what is not important as human beings. How do we train ourselves to value what is important? 
We'll probably get into this in more detail in future lessons, but just as a primer, remember that a sermon is not a 45-minute movie. You don't just get in that seat like you're going to the theater. Don't treat it as such. The goal is not captivation. It is not imagination. It is not storytelling that stokes the embers of our emotion. The goal of good preaching is to increase our understanding of and our affection for Jesus Christ. That is the goal. Is this a good sermon? Do I love Christ because of what was preached there? Does it help me to be impressed by him? Am I more thankful for what I just heard because of that man's faithful words of pointing me back to the scriptures that God has given? What roles do the scripture play in this sermon? Do you read the scripture and then set it to the side so that a man can tell you everything he thinks about a topic? Or is the word itself what drives what's being taught and communicated? Think about the role that the, play, the, that the scripture plays in that sermon. When you're trying to determine whether that sermon was edifying to you, whether you should recommend it to somebody else, how much did it really focus on what is eternal? Or was it simply just on the temporary thoughts of man? When the sermon is done, what part of that sermon is memorable to you? Now, this is not all on the preacher. If you're not focused, if you're not there for the right reasons, you'll probably remember things that don't matter. But you don't want to listen to preaching that is designed to make you think about and remember great stories or how, how holy the preacher is. Rather, you want preaching that grips your attention and makes you think about what the scripture was teaching in that moment and how you might try to live according to that truth. How you might try to trust Jesus to walk in that light. What is memorable in the sermon? Are the intentions of the sermon very clear? Somebody who gets into a pulpit should know what God has put them there to say. So if the sermon is absolutely scattered like a shotgun blast and hopefully it hits somebody, that's not really good preaching. Preaching should show people what the scripture has to say in such a way that they can understand it and that they can try to apply it on their own. Does the sermon cater to the lostness of the listener? Or does it expose man's lostness and contrast it to the glory of God? These are just a few things that we need to think about that will help us to understand and learn to appreciate good preaching instead of just letting the secular world around us define what good communication is and then applying rhetorical standards to what happens in a pulpit. Preaching is not just speaking. It is a holy act designed to draw attention to the Savior. Paul points back to the book of Isaiah in order to tie this into the historical story of redemption of God. 1 Corinthians 1.19 says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now this comes from Isaiah 29, which Paul uh, read earlier in our call to worship. Why does the Apostle Paul use this reference? He uses it for a very good reason. In 701 B.C., a man named Sennacherib was the king of a nation called Assyria, a warring nation, a type of empire in its own right. Assyria and its king, Sennacherib, has its eye on conquering Jerusalem and on taking Judah as its own territory. King Hezekiah is in charge of Judah at the time, and he's very distressed by this. He has already struggled against paying tribute to this tyrant who's trying to put his power on all the nations of the region. And so as Hezekiah has resisted him, that's caused this Assyrian empire, which 20 years earlier conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. It has caused them to now turn their attention to the southern kingdom, which has survived, Judah. Isaiah 29 prophetically anticipates the events of King Sennacherib's approach to Jerusalem and what will happen there. They're recorded in verses or chapters 36 and 37 of that same book of prophecy in Isaiah. Israel was very concerned. They were tempted to trust the wisdom of man. They knew that they had an ally in Egypt, and they thought perhaps if we lean on the power and influence of Egypt, we can scare Sennacherib, and he won't come and attack us. They were wondering what they should do. They were in prayer, and as these things are unfolding, Sennacherib declares war upon them. He sends a rhetorical powerhouse a man named Rabshakeh. Rabshakeh is a man designed 
to use the art of language to intimidate and persuade. He's come to intimidate the people of Judah and to make them feel foolish, to make them feel helpless and hopeless so that the king of Assyria can just come in and take over. And so in Isaiah 36, these are some of the things that Rabshakeh says. He says, beware, he's declaring this in the native tongue of the Hebrews so that all the people can understand. He says it before the kings and before the masses. He says, beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. You see what Rabshakeh is doing? He is intimidating. He is bullying. He is using persuasive words to make the hearts of the Israelites tremble. But he's doing something else at the same time. He is tempting the wrath of God. He is putting offense upon those who are called by God to be his people. Sennacherib wants to make Yahweh look like a fool, but God had other plans. They could not match the rhetoric of this crafty tyrant and his representative, and so they didn't even speak. As he declares these things, they just stand there silently. It must have been an awkward silence. They had been silent before Rabshakeh and his words, but when he left, you know what Hezekiah did? He didn't try to give a better speech. He told the nations of Israel to turn to God in prayer. And that is exactly what they did. They prayed. They appealed to the Lord God. And this is how the Lord God answers the boasting of Rabshakeh and Sennacherib. Isaiah 36, 36. It's so simple. It's one verse. Listen to this. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Think about that number for a minute. 185,000 soldiers. Can you imagine why the nations of Judah were trembling a little bit? 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning, so apparently not all are killed, there's more than 185,000. When they wake up, behold, these were all dead bodies. The angel of the Lord, singular, one angel, wipes out the entire, well, not the entire, but a huge swath of these Assyrian soldiers. Sennacherib had hundreds of thousands of soldiers, incredible worldly power. He had conquered great nations. The world seemed to be under his thumb, and no one seemed wise enough to escape his sword. But God sends one single angel and strikes down almost 200,000 in one night. For all of his eloquent words of worldly wisdom, Sennacherib could not stand before the Lord God. Shortly after this, Sennacherib returns home, and he's promptly assassinated by his own children and replaced on the throne of Assyria. The wisdom of man will self-destruct. God will bring it to nothing. We live in a time when the wisdom of God is often laughed at, but we cannot afford to trade the eternal sure wisdom of God for the temporary and flawed wisdom of mortal man. When we begin to become enamored with the thinking and the ways of the world, so much so that we begin to ignore the wise counsel of God, then we are on a path that leads to unraveling, friends. Dr. Moore, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers, said this. He said, the whole drift towards modernism, meaning trusting in the intellectual systems of humans, that has blighted the church of God and nearly destroyed its living gospel may be traced to an hour when men began to turn from revelation to philosophy. Began to turn away from the pure words of God's scripture to the speculative thinkings of human beings. The Apostle Paul, interestingly enough, said nearly the same thing himself in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Have you stood on your own wisdom 
to this point in your life? Have you decided that you'll run things and you'll decide what is best for you? Have you ignored the greater wisdom of God? I pray that the word makes your heart tremble today and that by the power of the Spirit, you will begin to wake up to the danger that you are in, that you will see that there is nothing you can do in your power to resolve this conflict between you and your Creator unless you take the path that was laid out from the beginning of time, Jesus Christ, the narrow gate, the narrow path, trusting in Jesus Christ and responding in faith Will you lay your wisdom at the foot of the cross today and determine to trust in the wisdom of God instead. Repent and believe that today might be the day of salvation. May each of us have our eyes open and may those of us who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, may we be strengthened and fortified. May we be edified by the word of God today to realize that we don't need to match the wisdom of the world, that we have a greater wisdom that will never fade or tremble. Let us trust our living God. Bow with me as we close in prayer. God, we are humbled to know you and to be in your presence. And we thank you, Father, for being greater than anything that we could conjure up in our greatest imaginations and dreams. You are so different than what we expect in many ways, but you are exactly, exactly what we need. Please humble us, Lord God. Help us to be good apologists in this world. When we have to face the likes of Rabshakeh, Lord, I pray that we would not wilt, that we would not run away crying, but that we would simply turn to you and appeal to your greater wisdom, God. You know what is right and good. And we bless your name today as we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.